Hey everyone, welcome to Race, Justice, and the Church. I'm your host, Nate Winstead. You can follow me at Nate Knight with a K wins. And today we're talking with my good friend, Deborah Metz. Deborah and I uh, have this thing where we call each other <laughs> church wife and church husband. It's true. Uh, because our pastor has a 10 year old son who is like kind of light skinned enough that he could be our child. <laughs> Sorry, Kenny. We're just telling you this. Um, one time we went, like, the three of us went to the bodega to get some ice for church or something. And we were walking down the street, and Deb was like, hey, People might think that <laughs> this child is they ours. They did think that. We took Josiah with us everywhere when we were first playing the church, and people would always stop and kind of nod their heads or disapprovingly look away. So it's, it's good stuff. Oh, great. Great. <laughs> great fun. Uh, so I've known Deb for uh, a little over two years now. Um, she was a part of uh, the core team for planting the Gathering Harlem, which we were uh, a part of together. Um, and Deborah is obviously, if you haven't guessed, African-American and comes from uh, an African-American family growing up in a reformed majority white church. Reformed PCA. Yes. Get the, <laughs> get the PCA in Feel there. that in your spirit as I say it. Not PCUSA. That's the other no, one, No, right? that they were, they were evil for us. We were PCA reformed. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't even know about all that. <laughs> Uh, but most recently, Deborah has worked uh, in the marketing department for Macy's Department Store, and right now she's pursuing teaching business at LIM, which is a fashion school in New York City. And Deborah continues to serve and lead in a lot of ways uh, at the Gathering in Harlem. So, Deb, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm blessing the mic with your first guest. <laughs> Get excited. All right. So uh, just to kind of start out, I would love for our listeners to hear just a little bit about who you are and really what your church experience was like growing up. Yeah. So I'm D-Money or Deborah, as they call me. Um, but in all seriousness, my church experience growing up was really, really unique. And it was, at the time, very challenging, but it has definitely, truly shaped who I am as a person. And I say that with no exaggeration. So I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. Um, yes, Georgia. And I grew up in a household, an African-American household, African-American neighborhood. You know, both of my parents, uh, solid marriage, two brothers. But my parents were saved a little bit before I was born. And they mm. were saved in a PCA reform church. By, by no, you know, planning, coincidental. And so as a result of that, when they established their life in Georgia as a new couple, they instantly looked for another PCA church to be a part of right. based on theological soundness. And so that church was called um, Providence Pres Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia. And we joined that church in the mid-80s, so probably about um, 1985 or so. Okay. <clears throat> The church also had a school attached to it. So I also went to school there. Ah, went to Christian school? Christian school. Really? I didn't know that. Okay. We were the first class. There was like five of us. So, oh, wow. Gotcha. And I was the only black girl for like 10 years. So there's a lot to be huh. said there that we'll, we'll dig into. But um, my experience of church was very different. Um, I did not belong ever. But mm. it was also the only church I ever knew. I didn't know anything about the black church. I'd never been to a black church. I only knew 
this small reformed community and worshiped only that way and only mm. socialized within my faith in that way for a very long time. So that's a little bit about my church background. Wow. Yeah, when I first heard your story, I was just like, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't expect like a reformed background. And yep. for those of you who don't know, um, <laughs> like the whole reformed camp, like this is something that I've it's learned camp, about recently. Sure. It definitely is a camp. Um, and you're not invited. (laughs) (laughs) Probably most of you aren't invited. Wow. Um, so I know like a a lot of it, you know, obviously it, uh, the name comes from the reformation. Mm -hmm. Um, but could you like tell us about like, what is the reformed camp kind of deal? So like, what's the, what are the distinctives, I guess? If you know, I should have prepared for this. Um, so because <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm so far removed from the reform camp, I could not give you the the best answer at all. Um, so I, I'm sorry for anyone listening to this in the future that I did not do you justice if you're reformed because I've, I've been so far removed. But so the reformation, as you refer to Martin Luther, the 95 theses that he nailed on the church. So this is all this idea of a group of people coming in and reforming the way church was done. Now, there's a lot of historical context to that, but when it came to my church experience, reformed really meant, I mean, you can certainly go into um, different other other camps of, uh, sub camps of Protestantism, Mm -hmm. but from a culture standpoint, reformed was a very rigid lane to be in. So Mm -hmm. you weren't just a Christian. Um, You were a Christian that, was steeped in Matthew Henry commentaries that was steeped in Spurgeon that ah. was steeped in specific people uh, that would make you reformed, whether that was your reading, whether that was where you went to seminary. And and mm. there's a lot more to be said for that. So again, I'm not doing it justice, but it was being a Christian, but it was also a different layer of being a Christian. Yeah. So you weren't just a Christian. You were a Christian that had immense knowledge behind you, immense education, you didn't just come to church to worship. You came to church to learn and uh, you were expected to come with a certain amount of knowledge to church wow. to contribute to the community. You don't come as a brand new Christian per se. You could, because of course we are there to save souls, but we're also there to polish our reformed ism. So it was okay. very much a culture of elitism, but not, it wasn't intentional elitism. It was just, you know, this is a, cult, a group of Christians that are extremely solid in what they believe from right. a, uh, theological standpoint more so than necessarily from pure a faith standpoint faith alone was never enough it had to be i mean it was in theory but mm. you w- you were expected to come with some type of pedigree when it came to your understanding of god of the bible uh why you were saved it was just a bigger bigger thing yeah a lot of uh, are more of a focus on right theology correct. and head knowledge correct. kind of stuff. Correct, correct. I mean, I think that, you know, whatever denomination or church you're a part of, it definitely, there's a lot of, um, you know, you have your own tradition and your own sure. tribe and camp or whatever. I mean, I'm, I grew up in the Christian church slash Church of Christ, uh, which our big focus was all about, uh, you know, independent churches. Every church was independent uh, and we just followed the bible and that was it no but we still like we heard about you acted like a <laughs> denomination but we yeah. said we weren't a denomination yeah yeah yeah. um you know it's it's fun distinctives like that yeah. Yeah. um but yeah we there's there's plenty of people in the christian church who are like 
uh, you know, we have a phrase, like a saying, uh, we're not the only Christians, but we're Christians only. But (laughs) but a lot of people act like we really are the only Christians. Yeah, yeah. And we had a presbytery and there was a whole hierarchy within the Reformed uh, Presbyterian Church. So, yeah, now that you're saying all that, it reminds me that there was, we're definitely very rule-centered. And I think that that's dictated a lot of how I've approached life. Mm. So. Yeah. And then, um, so then um, at some point you moved to New York City. Oh my gosh, you skipped like 20 years. Oh. <laughs> All right, well, let's go back then. So let's go back. Let's rewind a little so bit. So you grew up in that church, went to Christian school. Went to Christian school, grew up driving 30 minutes every day to go to school and 30 mm. minutes back. And then church in my day was morning and evening service. Ah, uh, yes. And we were like the only family out of maybe, you know, we were one of the few families that was at church on time every single week for every <laughs> event. So we would go to church at 10 and we'd go to Sunday school and church. We'd go home for a couple hours and go back to church at five. Wow. So this was every Sunday for 18 years until mm-hmm. I was graduating high school. So that was my church oh, experience. Wow. Okay. And it was catechism, shorter catechism. Like it was all these things, memorization. We were not baptized. We were sprinkled, you know, all these uh-huh. different things that were very, very specific to, um, to Gorgon reformed. And so, yes, I went to school there and went to church there. So you can imagine the immersion of culture. So there wasn't a whole lot of differentiation between my church friends and my school friends until I left that private school. Right. At 13, by the time I had a good 10 years of reformness mm. in there. Um, but yeah, it was interesting because even the, the church was positioned in what was called the south side of Savannah, Georgia, which is a nicer area, newer area, um, upper middle class. And we lived in, I guess, East Savannah, which wasn't a bad area, but it was very solid middle class, mm-hmm. mostly people of color. So we didn't live in any type of privilege, but we were going into this community every Sunday minimum, actually several times a week, that had nothing to do with us as mm. people. Yeah. Um, not just being black, but even just anything. Like culturally, like it was, we were an anomaly within this community for mm. almost 20 years. So all of that, in a nation of that kind of culture and experience, didn't end until I went to college. And even in college, okay. I started off the first year going to a very similar church that I knew of, that knew my family before I branched out. So really, mm. Anything about my faith was tied into that. And it wasn't until late high school, early college that I actually experienced for the first time being in a black church, being in any church, not even black, any church other than a reformed reformed where there wasn't a clap, there wasn't a whisper. It was all very rigid worship. Ah. Again, great theological background, but like there's no expression outside of, you know, reading and response. There was nothing to be uttered in the church. It just was none of that. It was very, very isolated in that sense and so i was fortunate enough to have other experiences but that shaped everything up until 18 19 wow yeah okay and then in college you kind of branched out i just kind of just stopped going to the reform yeah when i would go home yeah but like i kind of did what i wanted and like went different places and like little by little just kind of didn't go to the reform to circle for a while because then i realized how exhausted i was from being in that culture for Mm. so long and not having any type of diversity or anything and so i just kind of started running and never looked back gotcha to a sense all right and then wait and then did you move like to new york right out of college no i went to college in the south i went to atlanta 
which is a okay. whole, which was my first big metropolitan city. And then I ended up going to California for a few years. Oh. So my church experience really got a kick in the butt because I'm able to see this Bible Belt experience. Mm. Then I go to San Francisco where everybody's wearing rainbow and has their nails painted in church. And I'm like, what is this? Mm. Or they're, they're not really at church at all. They're in a park, but it's called church. Like, this is like crazy. Right. And then I come to New York <laughs> where it's yeah. really urban and like there's street preachers and there's black Hebrew Israelites and like all these things. Right. So I feel really fortunate to have been in the Bible belt, to have that foundation, but also to have branched out and seen how people approach faith from every perspective. Yeah. Because that prepared me for now. Otherwise, I'd probably be terrified to see half the things that I see. But I've uh-huh. seen it all now. So, wow, that's, yeah. that's like yeah. a lot of people don't have, you know, or even if they do, they don't appreciate like you do, you know, how much yeah. different church experience that you've had. It's totally different. And you need to see it all to be effective. Yeah. Yeah. So when you came to New York, you were part of Christ Crucified Fellowship, mm-hmm. uh, which is in... Inwood, Washington Heights. Shout outs. Shout outs. Uh, Big ups. Down the street from where I live. It's pretty great. Yep. Um, Pastor Rich Perez. Um, he's a That's the amazing homie. guy. Yep. Um, and Pastor Kinney was there mm-hmm. uh, doing a, like, I don't know, I, whatever. He was just on staff and he was preparing to plant uh, here in Harlem at some point. Yeah, right? when I met Kenny, he was visiting. So I, I went into CCF by accident. It was in a boxing gym. And I walked in thinking, where am I? And I heard um, Rich preaching and I, I didn't, I never left. So I didn't even know Kenny existed. But a few months into attending this church, I keep hearing, oh, Kenny's coming to visit. My friend Kenny's coming. I'm like, okay, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Great, see you next week. And Rich kept saying, you should meet Kenny. And I'm thinking, okay, who cares? Uh-huh. And the church was mainly, a, it was a big Dominican population there. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few white people, a few black people, but mostly Dominican. So I think he was saying that to say, hey, I have this other guy coming, African-American guy. You should meet him, you know, <laughs> right. to kind of encourage me. But I was uh-huh. like, I don't care what you're talking about. So I met Kenny <laughs> a few months in. I was like, oh, great. Nice guy. Whatever. And then I took him and his wife to dinner and never looked back oh, from that wow. relationship. Oh, okay. So I didn't know who Kenny was. I had no interest in following Kenny anywhere. And had in meeting him really was touched by his fervor, by his genuineness. And he was young. He was like 26. Yes. By this time I'm 30, you know, so I'm, you know, growing mm-hmm. up, growing yeah. up, doing grown up things, seeing it all. So I really had no interest in whatever we're doing now. I didn't think it was even a need, mm-hmm. but I met him and the seed was planted in 2013, 2014. And then, you know, what is it? Three years later, we ended up planning the church or four years later. So that's a little bit about, you know, Kenny. Thanks, Rich. Man, well, you're giving us the whole your whole you're getting all church the experience here. Everything. <laughs> Stop me. Stop me if it's too much. You know, it's oh, a lot. it's good. Um, okay, so you've shared with us, uh, you know, just kind of a snapshot of your church experience um, from all over. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I want to uh, transition a little bit to talk about um, a broader picture of. Uh, working in corporate America mm, and yep. business life. And then later we're going to get back and kind of talk about how that compares to the church. But, Please don't do it. Let's not do it. Oh, yes. <laughs> Juicy. We're going to do it. Um, okay. So you worked in marketing uh, for Macy's, <clears throat> which I think is pretty cool. Thanks. Um, just to work for Macy's. It sounds cool a... on paper. I'm, I love that I can say it. Of course, every day it's tough, but it sounds cool. Yeah. I work for Macy's. I'm in marketing. Yeah. But uh, could you just tell our listeners a little bit 
you know, what you did, what your work was, was like there. Um, you keep saying was, is that a sign? What? I'm still there. Oh, I thought you weren't there anymore. <gasps> you're prophesying me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Whoops. your career is going to take off. We can talk about that in another podcast. <laughs> oh, oh dear. Well, I'm she's still, still there. there. She's still there at Macy's. Jesus, I'm still there. What do you want me to do next? Okay, living, so. Living the life. Yes. I've been there uh, for five plus years. I started off um, just, I actually wasn't looking for the job. I was looking for a million other jobs. Hmm. And after a year and a half of working three jobs and looking for the perfect corporate job and not finding it, I get a call from Macy's.com at the time to come work for them. And I'm like, who is this? How did you get my resume? Mm -hmm. And at this point I'm so beat up by being in New York and not having proper work. that I'm like, sure, I'll come, I'll take the job. Finding a job in New York city can be very hard, very difficult. People. It doesn't matter how much experience you have. It doesn't. So I took it and it was beneath what I thought I would be doing, but it ended up being a great catalyst. From there, um, I was coordinating samples for our .com team that does all of the imagery that you see on any other website pictures. And then, you know, guy was faithful. I wasn't looking for anything per se, but for the next two to three years, I got some form of promotion every year. And it landed me where I am now, which is uh, Omni Manager. So I managed a team of about nine people that in different locations support different aspects of either the website or the commercials that we produce, any marketing asset that you see, whether it's printed or digital or .com, my team is partially behind that. Supporting logistics, supporting the planning, the execution on the sets, all those things. So what you're saying is you're kind of a big deal. I mean, (laughs) no one that works with me would say that, but... On the podcast, yes, I am. Sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, so I want to talk about race a bit because that's what we do sure, on let's this do podcast. Um, so corporate culture often means majority culture, a.k.a. white culture. Facts. Um, and I know this is something you have to deal with at a company like Macy's. Um, and I remember even a few years ago, uh, you posted an article on Facebook about corporate America and natural hair. That was I a great it. article. Yeah. Still have to post these things, but yes. But yeah, could you just kind of um, share what kind of things that um, that you have to deal with that some of our listeners might not really, you know, be aware of? Well, I think in the climate now, the Me Too climate, and all these other things that are happening, actually, the awareness probably is is really. Um, a little bit clearer than it ever has been before. Mm. Um, I currently have a shaved head. You're welcome for those of you that can't see me, which is everybody. (laughs) Um, So the natural hair discussion has kind of changed because at Mm. that time I had a lot of hair. Um, And that was just a reflection of other things. So in 20, probably that was 2017, I'm still dealing with people asking me, you know, how my hair grew over the weekend or wanting to touch mm-hmm. it, which, I mean, we hear that cliche and we laugh at it, but it's like real. It happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a black woman in corporate culture, actually, I thought I was working for a pretty progressive company. We mm-hmm. had classes on diversity. We had VGVPs that were black and women. And so I was in the first few years really encouraged about mm. that. And I yeah. thought, you know, man, these other people, these other companies, they must hate their life because at Macy's like we don't have that issue we have diversity we talk about it all the time Um, and so that those are real things but I noticed that the higher I got up and granted I'm not that high I'm not a vice president yet which would be next ish Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I've moved through the stages of entry level to mid to, you know, managing people. The higher I got up, the more blatant I found myself dealing with issues. And they're not things that are, mm. that were ever like, we don't want you here. It's just a dismissal factor where either you're not at the meeting at all, or if you are, you're not really expected to contribute much and no one's going to say that. Yeah. But I know walking into a room, number one, I'm probably the only, I may be the only, most likely I'm the only black person in the room, which I happens so much. I forget about it. Mm. I'm definitely the only black woman in the room who has any type of leadership in a lot of cases. Mm. Um, and so there isn't anything blatant, but there is a sense of people either don't expect much of you or they expect you to come in aggressive and fit the cliche of an angry black executive who's bitten stiff by the man and there's a sense of that so you're either expected to contribute under the average contribution or you're expected to come in and be this angry aggressive but super effective powerful leader so it's like an extreme if you will and yeah i'm not saying that like racism isn't real but it comes out differently when you're in a position of a little bit of leadership so i've definitely experienced comments here and there nothing where i you know, it's been blatant, blatant, but it's more sense of like what's expected of you and what's not expected of you and what you will and will not do. And that hmm. unspoken is more uncomfortable than the spoken. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, really interesting that, um, you know, you talk about in a leadership position, it's a different dynamic Yeah. that's, that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I think it's amazing that you said, uh, you know, so quickly that you're often the only black person, definitely the only black woman in the room at mm-hmm. a lot of the, and you've gotten so used to it that you don't even notice. Not anymore. Yeah. Not really. Um, I, so far as a white man, you're the <laughs> <that> man, <laughs> very rare for me to <clears throat> ever be in that situation yeah. in any sphere of life. Mm. Um, and I remember, um, you know, when I first was actively putting myself in uh, spaces where I would be the only white person, it mm. was, I had a, I would, I would have these weird freak out experiences just all in my head um, about how people are perceiving me. Mm. Um, like the school I went to, uh, oftentimes in class, you know, I'm very active and I'll answer questions and I'm like, oh, am I answering too many questions? Right. Like I'm the Taking white guy. Over, yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, you, uh, like, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. um, it's just, uh, you know, I think that's an important thing for, uh, people to be aware of. Um, if that's something that, um, if you are a minority, like you have to deal with it. It's like, mm-hmm you can't not think about it um, because you know working in corporate America that's that's just one of the yeah. things you have to deal with that's what it is um, so yeah there's a lot of great stuff there um, so any anything else you wanted to we could go for days but I, I, the thing I will say to transition a little bit is, no, like I don't think that my parents intended for my church upbringing to be the foundation that it was for my life. They, they definitely they were Christians and they didn't when they when it came to our faith they really had no concept of like me needing to be in any type of environment. They're like the word is here, truth is here. We're gonna go there. We don't mm. care who's there. 
Right. That was their approach, right? They weren't thinking, we're going to put her into an all-white culture where she's going to get teased and bullied and always be the outsider until she's about 18, blah, blah, blah. Like, they weren't thinking that. But what they didn't realize is how much me being immersed in the the PCA church, shout out, um, Reform PCA church, Mm -hmm. shaped me as a person. And it was really, it was hard, but Mm. it was so good because... You know, God knows what he's doing and I still don't know what he has planned for me. But if I had not been in that space, uh, my faith would be the same. But also I wouldn't be able to be in the corporate space the Hmm. way that I am. And I have a lot of work to do, but a lot of the ease with which I conduct myself, even in this conversation, it comes from that exposure to being the only person in the room for years. Mm. Yeah. And I'm so thankful for that because on one hand, it shows the dynamic that needs to be worked on in the PCA church. And there's yeah. a lot of discussion around that. But on the other hand, it it really prepared me for things. And I feel like God is still doing his thing with me. And I don't know where he's going to have me landing. But it prepared me to function in all white spaces. And many of my counterparts did not have that. Hmm. So functioning in all white spaces and really ac- academic spaces and theologically high standard spaces like prepare me in a lot of ways to be in the boardroom now i'm still in there with my knees shaking half the time but (laughs) i know i belong there Mm, and i know that i can converse with you in any way that you like i know that yeah and that's from the years of training that i despise probably at the time Mm -hmm. in some days of being in a white environment which was a theological space but it was still a space that was very uh, reflective of white america and of life and it it was completely life changing for me. Wow. Well, I mean that's that that's a such Thanks, such a Mom good perspective <laughs> uh, to be able to see the good in that. Yeah. Uh, because absolutely. you could you know you could be bitter and um, you know just uh, yeah bitter bitter about all that and not see you know how God can use that um, to bless your life to mm-hmm. you know. Because he's in the he's in the business of uh, turning yeah. negative things into positive things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'm hoping that uh, many of our listeners I don't know yet because of the first episode I don't know who's going to be listening <laughs> to this, but I hope that uh, a number of our listeners are, you know, from white evangelical churches and um, so with your unique experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering what you could tell majority white church leaders. If you could tell them anything, you know, what, what do you think um, would be good for them to know? Or like, if you wish you could tell, um, if you could just tell them, Hey, you need to know this. What would you say? That's hard because I was like waiting for that question. I was like, I'm going to have a great answer, but I think, you know, and I don't, so I don't despise my upbringing at all. I don't, I don't say it in a negative way mm-hmm. <clears throat> because there was so much good that came from it. But, you know, one thing that, that I was keenly aware of was that there, we were the safe, I was the safe black girl. We were the safe black family. There mm-hmm. wasn't any true desire to really know and understand culture outside of the comfort zone that, that they, they were steeped in. Mm. And I think that's changing. So mm-hmm. I would say to start, um, don't wallow in guilt, you know, don't, wow. don't wallow in guilt. Don't wallow in that. Like there's so much co- things out there right now that are pushing diversity and all those things, but they're, they're causing people 
who are white to, to wallow in a sense of guilt. And I, and I get where the anger comes from. I get all of that, but that will mm-hmm. not help you be effective. So we don't need your insistent apologies. We don't need guilt. We need a heart for change. So diversity mm-hmm. in and of itself isn't enough. There has to truly be a heart desire to have your congregation reflect Christ's church, his mm-hmm. broader church. Without that, nothing that you do is going to matter or it's going to be effective. So, you know, the desire for your congregation to reflect Christ's church can't just be a desire for it to look diverse Mm. because that will fade and that will cause tension. And that is not God's plan. Ultimately, you have to ask yourself the why, not what am I going to do to make my church feel more welcoming or look more welcoming on our website? Like what, why am I doing this? Why am I in ministry? Why am I in this space? Mm. And why do I want to change if I'm in an all white space? I want to change that the trajectory of my congregation. You have to ask why. And, And if you can't go back to wanting to look like the Acts church or, you know, having a reflection of what God ultimately wants, which is, complete mixing of peoples and income levels and Mm -hmm. all of that. If you can't go back to that truly being your desire, then you need to go back to the drawing board. So, you know, I really would love to see churches that that look diverse. I love that. I get excited. Oh my gosh. Like I go home and I see these churches in the South and they're diverse. I'm like, you got diversity. Yay. But like, that's not enough. Mm. And that will not last for generations to come. So why do you want to change? If you want to change because this the movement right now is to be really hip and really woke. Is that why you want to change? Do you want to fit in with like what people expect you to do as an all white church, and you, they expect you to be opening, or do you want to change for reasons that are deeper than that? Mm. So yeah. I I admire the desire to change. I admire the fact that white evangelicals are for the first time saying we need to actually be conscious of race. We need to look at our congregations, mm-hmm. but it's not a movement, and you should have been doing this a long time ago. Wow. So when it's not popular, will you still do it? When in 10 mm. years, you know, what, so your why is important. Diversity in and of itself is not enough. Man. Ooh, that's getting deep, deep to the why. Snap. Um, I mean, I think that's so true. Uh, you know, diversity, uh, just for diversity's sake, seems to be a real, like, uh, you know, a buzzword and, mm-hmm. and even just, like, I, I feel like a lot of, um, Christian leaders and pastors are like, yeah, yeah, diversity. We need right. more of that. Right. Um, and if you ask them why, you know, they'll, they don't really have a very deep answer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, myself included, uh, you know, for a lot of my life, I would have been like, oh yeah, you know, it's in sure. the Bible, you know, revelation, um, you know, all the tribes, tongues, peoples, and languages, right. you know, before the throne, you know, that's what you want. Um, but you're right. It has to go um, a lot deeper than that. Um, and and I want to just interject and say yeah. that, like, even as a person of color, I get so encouraged with diversity because I know it's so hard for a lot of congregations that, you know, have been all white for so many years to even do that. Mm, yeah. So we, we get really excited that we're actually open to the idea and we actually have a black family right. in the front row. Like, and that's not to be put down mm-hmm. because even that could take a lot of work to get to that point. It's just understanding that that is not the goal. Right. So how do we encourage churches that are, that are finally trying to diversify their congregation, but also remind them that that's not the goal. And that's tough because 
I remember just clapping when we had like another black family in the church, like after like almost 18 years, yeah. like, oh my God, they're here. <laughs> yes. Don't leave me. You know, like <laughs> right. I'm so proud of my past. You know, I'm proud of all these people changing that I've right. seen and, you know, playing. There's a lot that I could tell you. So, you know, but that in and of itself, that's not the promised land. And mm. it's tough because you want to yeah. encourage the movement, but ask where the root is mm. so that the plant can grow. If you don't have a root, it's not going to. That family will leave, you know, like racism yeah. will come back out. People really don't want them there anyway. Like there's just going to be issues. So it's mm. a delicate thing, but especially in the South, it's seeing those little hopes, those glimmers. We want to encourage that without forgetting the root of why we're doing it. Ooh, man, that's, that's gold. That's good stuff. Cause, uh, yeah, white supremacy runs real deep. And it's uh, invisible and just below the surface all the time. And like yep. you said, it could just come out. Oh, yeah. um, and if you want, uh, you know, real diversity or whatever we call it, the long-term vision, then mm-hmm. uh, it's it's going to be constant hard work. I recently um, heard uh, Tim Keller. Uh, he's a pastor. Presbyterian pastor. Shout out to Tim Keller. (laughs) Wasn't even planning on shouting him out. No one paid us. Good old PCA, right? I don't know. Was he PCA? I I think he was, but he's in that group. I don't know. But anyway. Yeah, he's great uh, though. um, You know, he was talking about uh, urban church movements. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of his main points was if you want to truly have a multi-ethnic church, then um, it will, there will always be some tension yeah and like you'll get through something right and you'll be like yay we got through it great right, right. And he's like get ready because it's going to come again right and it will never end and that's <laughs> scary because yeah that's, that's a lot of hard work it's a lot of work then and... it doesn't end yeah <laughs> i don't yeah. know like that's true and it's like that's why a lot of people don't want to embark on it and it's exhausting but that's ultimately what the community should look like so yeah i'm here for it so um i want to finish up uh talking a little a little bit about where we are now at the gathering hey um so for those of you who don't know uh the gathering harlem is a church plant in central harlem new york city uh we are turning two years old in september oh my gosh we are um yeah <laughs> we're walking now Seems like much longer than that it but does no, just years um yeah, yeah. and uh we're predominantly um i mean african-american there's definitely um afro-caribbean lots of people mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. uh latin yeah um spanish speaking afro latino sure all of that um and then a few white people sprinkled in a few (laughs) few but um yeah how like how is it being a part of the gathering this is such a broad question i know but i'm like what is it like for you being a part of this kind of church now that Mm -hmm. um is obviously majority people of color, Mm -hmm. um, but is still very intentional about, you know, um, diversity and um, justice and these kind of things. Very different from PCA. (laughs) Yeah, the tables have switched and I never thought I would be in this position. I never Mm. thought I would be at a church that, that, that was preaching the the gospel genuinely Mm -hmm. and 
you know, was made up of people that looked like me. I didn't expect that. Like, I remember the first time I walked into CCF previous to the church and thinking, where am I? Like, I'm in a church of majority people of color. Um, the word is being preached thoroughly and firmly, mm. um, theologically sound, which, you know, no shade, but like, you don't see the combination there. And like, there's mm-hmm. a true heart for the community. Like, I just never thought I would be here. So being a part of the gathering is still to this day surprising because I'm like, how did this, this really exist? Like if this, mm-hmm. I yeah. didn't, I didn't know, like, you know, <laughs> this and it could be a possibility. This yeah. is real. Like, and I'm like, this makes up for all those years. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> no, but everything happens in a season. So it's amazing mm. because it's so refreshing. And even after two years, I'm still refreshed and surprised at what we do. And like, the concept of what we're doing, it still blows my mind that we are doing what we're doing with ministry, social justice, all those things. Also, it makes me feel a heart for minorities in our church Mm. because the minorities now are people that are white. Mm -hmm. And so that's, there's nothing wrong with that, Uh (coughs) Nate, but (laughs) um, the issue there is I know how that feels. And so mm-hmm. while we want to continue to press our vision with authenticity and most importantly with God leading us, you know, we don't want to get so wrapped up in our comfort zone and our vision as people of color where we, where we isolate either. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know how to make this sound politically correct, but yeah. I always am conscious of the fact that, you know, we are very pro justice and pro all those things mm-hmm. and as we should be, but we also don't want to get into a holy huddle of, a church that's mostly people of color and we're comfortable with that. Like it needs, we need to push for the same kind of multicultural that we've, you know, pushed for in other spaces. Mm. So how does, I always think about the challenge of what that looks like. You know, how do we, how are we intentional about serving our community, about going for the causes that are important to us, but also not isolating our white brothers and sisters who are right now in the minority in our congregation. That's not say mm. we have to have a mission to bring more white people in because <laughs> God is going to do yeah. that or mm-hmm. he's going to bring more Asian people in or whatever he wants mm-hmm. to bring in Afro-Caribbean. Yeah. But I think having come from that environment of being the only, you know, black person in a theologically sound church for all these years, I just think, man, I want to mm-hmm. make sure that like where I go, there's a balance because if there isn't enough tension, there's not a balance. Ooh, so there has to be tension. That's a word right there, right? Y'all. And like, I honestly love our church. <laughs> I need to pause the podcast. Think about that for Kenny's a second. Kenny's gonna kill me. Um, but I also feel like there has to be more tension at some point, right? And right now we're in a space we love our church community. We we all love each other. We're comfortable, and that's great. Yeah. But if we're not talking about issues of what it's like to have maybe a former Muslim come in our church and feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. or whatever, like you could be a former. Um, uh, you could be from the Church of Latter-day Saints. Like, there needs to be tension there that we are challenged continuously mm. in our multiculturalness. Ooh. So it can't just be a place where everybody that I sit in there, sit next to, knows my cultural references. I love oh, that. Man. Yeah. And I love being, I feel at home. Yep. But it's not about me. So if I don't have someone there that's challenging, what do you mean by that? Or what does that mean? Or I'm not, I don't eat that kind of food or I don't know what that, where do you, what do you mean extensions? Like, yeah, that's annoying. And like, I want to (laughs) be right. But I'm just saying like, it doesn't have to be people that are white, but there needs to be some tension there that keeps everyone on their toes and challenged to growth because ultimately we're not creating just a comfort pillow for us to lay down on spiritually. Like we love that, but we need to have an environment where everyone is, is being sharpened. Yeah. And I think for us, that looks like, more challenging diversity, which mm. we will, I'm sure, encounter, but we can't rest where we're at. What we have is great, yeah. but what we have is a starting point. 
And we need more infusion of people that will shake us up and go, well, why do you do it that way? Yeah. What about this way? What about this people that we haven't talked to? What about this community that we don't know about? Mm. What, like, why are we not engaging these people? Like, yeah. that needs to be a question. So whenever we stop asking that, we're not really on vision. So. Oh, man. That, that's why you're part of the core team. I know. Like, come on. This, oh, man, you're dropping some bombs here because uh, I know that churches can get so comfortable. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, we think that tension or any kind yeah. of conflict at all is bad or sinful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look at the life of Jesus, he is constantly having conflict with people mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because he's challenging the status right, quo right, right. Um, as it pertains to the gospel and who God is. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if we're going to, if we're going to be serious about, um, being multi-ethnic, there is going to be a continual constant tension that we have to deal with. There's layers. Um, there's layers. There's layers <laughs> like to it. Onion. Yeah. <laughs> layers. All right. Um, well, Deb, thank you so much for being on my first episode. This is an amazing conversation. Thanks for having me. I'm like so excited to hear this. I can't wait. Um, are there any, like, do you want to share any socials or anything? Um, <laughs> Can people follow you? Do you post? I don't know. I do, but it's like not curated yet. But DMETS86 is my Insta. So shout out to your girl. I have production ventures coming up and different projects that I'm doing. So yeah, I would love any followers. Let's go. And Deb is making moves out here, people. Lord willing. Give her a follow. Yeah. And update since we first recorded, Deb has actually changed her Instagram. It is now DRMP underscore creative. So you can follow her there. 